Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found. Well, welcome back to the next episode of Beyond Therapy. And today we're talking about a multi-layered topic, um, which is deconstructing counselor education. So I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Brianna Parker today in this conversation. So the primary focus here is we're going to be talking about deconstructing counselor education to better align our professional goals to embody multiculturalism, social justice, problem-based inquiry, and creativity. So Dr. Parker has, I think, really hit the nail on the head in saying that counseling training is known for upholding traditional, patriarchal, and for marginalized communities, harmful praxis. So it's really important to align our training to support critical awareness, inquiry, practice, and empowerment models to future counseling professionals so that they can best support clients in various clinical populations. So meaty topic we have today. Very excited. (laughs) Okay, so I want to formally introduce Dr. Parker. Uh, So Dr. Parker received her master's in education in professional community counseling and her doctorate in counselor education and supervision from the University of Georgia. Most of her clinical experience training and research interest has been working with emerging and middle adults who have experienced relational or interpersonal forms of victimization, such as intimate partner violence, sexual violence, and emotional or verbal abuse. During her doctoral experience and currently, she's engaged in teaching and instruction, research, professional conference presentations, and discussions on how we can create sustainable and multicultural and social justice grounded counselor education praxis. Wanting a different experience during her own master's counseling training program that better reflected her experience as a black queer woman is what motivated her to pursue her doctorate degree in counselor education. So in the two years that she's been able to teach core and elective courses in the master's counseling program, She's been able to integrate non-traditional instructional and curricular activities to embody and prepare students to work within multicultural, justice-based, and trauma-responsive counseling with clients and their communities. That all sounds pretty amazing. (laughs) I'm super happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I wanted us to maybe start out with some definitions, um, just so we can like really orient folks who maybe they're counselors, maybe they are, in fact, counselor educators. So really trying to kind of include the spectrum of different positions within the field here. So can you first just describe the multicultural and social justice counseling competency? So these ethical guidelines that really are going to serve as the foundation for our talk and the work that you've been doing. Yes. And so um, I can't talk about the multicultural social justice counseling competencies, which is a mouthful, um, without talking about, um, you know, the kind of iterations that informed um, those competencies. And so prior to having multiculturalism and social justice be a part of counseling competencies, we first had just the multicultural competencies, um, which I believe came out in 1997. Um, that's if that's not it? the right... 
date, um, please make sure that I can edit. We'll double check. We'll, we'll double check. Um, but I believe I believe it happened in the, the late nineties. Then there's another iteration that happened in the early two thousands before the two thousand sixteen version of the competencies where social justice was added. Um, and the big and the, the the definition essentially is saying that we can't really engage in counseling without thinking about our own awareness of our own and other people's identities and lived realities based on their constructed social identities. Um, and so we can't just do counseling um, and just be like, oh, we're just all experiencing the same thing or that I'm not going to think about, you know, their racial identity or sexual identity and their class identity um, and their citizenship identity. Um, what the original authors were saying was that we have, in order for us to do responsive and culturally relevant counseling, we have to think about people's identities and their relevant identities and how that's going to inform not only their experience of wellness or healing or any clinical diagnosis or concern, um, but also our relationship. And we know that, you know, the therapeutic relationship and alliance is so important. That rapport is so important. And so we have to think about not only our own attitudes, bias, and worldviews, but that of our client based on identity, how that's going to inform our therapeutic relationship, um, how knowledge of their identities is going to kind of inform the type of like treatment options and interventions that we engage in. Um, but then also, if we know this information, that's going to impact the kind of skills that we do clinically to support this client. Um, so that's kind of the, the original like crux of we can no longer just have this like colorblind approach or um, this like identity um, evasive, I won't say colorblind, that's kind of evasive, but this kind of identity evasive approach to counseling where we just treat everybody like they're the same. We have to be mindful um, and thoughtful of their identities as we're engaging in counseling. And so then you, you know, move forward um, and we're having more conversations in counseling and counselor education about, well, what does it mean to do advocacy work as well? Because we can talk about having this awareness and consciousness. We can talk about you know, finding knowledge, whether it be through books or lived realities or immersing ourselves in different cultural experiences. And we can talk about these skills that we can kind of utilize that align with the populations that we're working with. Um, but what do we do outside of just being in our offices, in our clinical spaces? Um, and that became um, an entry point for social justice to be a part of it as well. So it was in addition to thinking about the multifaceted ways and intersectional ways that different identities will inform people's lived realities and how they make sense and make meaning of their experience of whether it be trauma or clinical diagnosis or problems in their families or the development. Um, we also have to think about the way that power, control, domination, his stories, her stories, T stories, non-binary stories, the way that these lived histories and realities that are you know very present and people's lived reality and are omnipresent when we think about the intersection of how power and privilege, um, but also marginalization happens for people um, and how that creates essentially these axes or these intersections, as Kimberly Crenshaw talks about, um, and the ways that people live their lives. Um, and so the multicultural social justice competencies essentially kind of marry those two things together. Um, we have to think about people's identities and how they're multifaceted and how that's gonna impact um, the way that we understand their experience in counseling and then how we're gonna react and respond to it, how we're gonna intervene. Um, but we also have to think about the ways that I have 
privilege and oppressed identities that are like constantly evolving depending on who I'm in front of and how that can essentially recreate different forms of domination or different forms of discrimination or mistreatment or equity, uh, whatever words um, essentially align with power and privilege as well as domination that can happen um, based on identities. And so when you look at the model, um, you have at the center that we're supposed to be practicing from this kind of multicultural and social justice lens. Um, and then as you move out, you kind of get these rings around, you know, as counselors, we have to be aware of our own identities, our own histories, our values, um, what kind of shapes who we are in our environment and how we see the world and how we see our clients. But then we're also doing this dance because we're also having to be aware of their identities as well and how, you know, if they have a more privileged identity, how that's going to impact the way we engage with each other. Um, you know, if they have um, multiple marginalized identities, how that's going to impact access to certain things. Um, and how oftentimes I'm going to be seen as the person who has the most knowledge that might impact the way that we discuss, you know, how do I support you or what are going to be the best avenues of like collaboration if you have some treatment things that I can no longer serve you with. And so, Essentially, these competencies look at the awareness, knowledge, skills, but what's added is the advocacy part. It's another this expectation that counselors not only need to know about different identities and, and being able to understand equity and diversity um, of different people's lived realities, and also knowing that we have these kind of structural, um, institutional, but also like these kind of cultural um, forms of oppression or ways that people are not allowed to have access to different opportunities or basic rights. Um, but then also how it's going to impact the relationship that we have and how I'm going to work with you in a clinical setting. Well, I think that's such a great overview, especially how you're bringing in that the first part of multiculturalism is awareness of identities. And then the advocacy piece really embodies awareness and the ethical mandate to act on how those identities intersect with oppression. Yeah. Because I mean, I think the, uh, the beautiful part about the multicultural social justice competencies is they started bringing in more theories. And so liberation psychology was brought in, intersectionality theory was brought in, critical race theories were brought in as these kind of undergirding theories that provided some opportunity for us to kind of think about things in a more broader sense, but to also know that we can no longer say that, oh, it's not really a racial issue, or we don't really think about the way that power plays into counseling. But that in fact that we are aware that anti-Black racism and racism is very much entangled in the fabric of our society and that we're all socialized into it. And so we have these kind of messages where they're internalized and also projected and externalized about people who identify in different ways that are different to us or even have the same identity. Um, and so I think those theories provide um, a, a more in-depth framework for how we're having to start having conversations about power and historically the way that we've maybe harmed people um, because of our privilege as counselors and because of our identities as counselor um, and how much power we hold with regarding like diagnosis and treatment and following people um, across their lives because of how they're how we label them. Digging in a little bit more to the privileged identity of counselor, uh, something that feels it, important to me about this competency is that we're required to acknowledge our both our marginalized and our privileged identities, right? So mm -hmm. if we're thinking that counselor identity is primarily privileged, 
And then if we also think that counseling pedagogy is generally white centered and assumes kind of all the privilege, <laughs> um, how important it is to embrace the impact of how our marginalized identities show up in the counseling room. So um, given that identity and worldview are such important parts of these guidelines, um, can you say a little bit about kind of the current state of representation in counselor education? So whether that's students, professors, leadership, what does the field look like identity-wise these days? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I actually had an opportunity to look this up for a, um, a research article I was doing about the kind of matriculation of particularly Black women um, throughout like counseling and psychology programs. Um, and so for the most part, um, I'll start with the programs and kind of work our way out. Um, so for the most part, um, counseling and like psychology and its other counterparts are still predominantly um, majority white individuals, mostly women, predominantly. I think as you start getting into like the different sects of psychology and stuff like that, that it might be more male dominated, but for the most part, racially and ethnically, it's white European descendant folks who are in counseling programs, especially counselor education programs. And I do feel like there has been this um, increase in folks who are BIPOC. And so Black and Latinx folks, and Black being African-American, but also folks who are African-ascendant, also being within programs. Folks who are multiracial are also represented in counselor education programs. Folks who are APIDA, so Asian Pacific Islander, Desi American, are also kind of getting in there. Indigenous people are also, depending on the area, are starting to go into counseling a little bit more. So the numbers are increasing at different rates, depending on where you're looking at and what region you're looking at in, as far as in our country but still predominantly is mostly white women. And as we think about faculty, it kind of follows that same trajectory where there it is mostly white women. There's also um, white men. I think maybe it's depending on, where, again, where you look, it could be like either 50-50 or like slightly more white women than it is white men in the field. I think most times white men are oftentimes in psychology based on what I've seen. And then um, as we start thinking about leadership, there's this interesting thing that happens that while this field as far as practitioners is mostly white women. When you think about leadership, a lot of it is white men. And and oftentimes in leadership, we talked about this, and I've, I've seen it when we talked about it at, at American Counseling Association, as well as like ACES, which is our um, Association for Counselor Education and Supervision. The fact that oftentimes the leaders who are in these spaces have been there for a while, um, have been through the leadership kind of like cycle or pool a couple of times. And oftentimes they're in different types of leadership. So it could be the professional organization. It could be the people who are doing the editorials in chief for publications that are associated with professional organizations, maybe the people who become deans in different colleges and stuff like that. So the field is still predominantly white women when it comes to like the immediate service. But when it comes to leadership, we often see that as usually white men with there being other identities, racial, ethnic identities kind of falling and kind of clumping together right after that. What barriers do you see are kind of preventing counselor education programs from really aligning with more deconstructed praxis approaches and just some of these, like you named liberation psychology, critical race theory. What is keeping these principles and these approaches really kind of on the sideline, like as just sort of a footnote mention, I think, in a lot of counseling programs? Yeah. 
I think the, I think there's a couple of barriers to it. I think for the most part, people were just now getting their footing when we had just the multicultural competencies. Um, and I think even with that, it was kind of easier to kind of catch on because at that point in time, diversity and, and thinking about people's like literality and different people's perspectives and histories was really um, important when we think about what was happening socially for us. But I think adding social justice, um, like many things that kind of have been happening the last five to 10 years is that things start to become buzzwords. And so we get into the kind of consumerization of like, oh, well, if they're saying anti-Black, then I also have to say, (laughs) if if they're saying decolonizing, we also should be decolonizing our program as well. And I think there is a, as a person who worked in the diversity, equity, inclusion office, we struggle with this a lot in that it's so easy to kind of take on a framework or take on a theory or even take on an approach to making things better. Um, but what that requires is that you have to get really immersed with understanding this thing in a very dynamic way. And usually that takes a long time. And so I, I, a specific example I think about is during the pandemic when so many Black men and women and, and children were getting gunned down during that summer. Summer and springtime, right after we were going into 2020, there was this like everybody was doing anti-racism stuff in their field. And I was like, none of you have picked up a kindy book. There has been multiple BIPOC, trans, non-binary, disability justice advocates who have been talking about this for decades. And none of those people are mentioned. Um, And so it felt like there was this, like every conference was talking about this, every book, every article, there was these special issues, um, which provided some leeway for people who have been talking about this to talk about it in a very specific way, which I think was great. But I think the challenge that comes with that is that the the hard part about integrating it is that we don't do enough of the work before we start integrating it. Me and my friend had a book we used to do like a book club, reading Kenny's book stamp from the beginning. And it was just so much information. Like it was, and it was like really kind of like messing with how we even think about ourselves as, you know, two black women who were first year counselor education, tenure track professors. We were like, it was blowing our mind because they were talking about assessment. They were talking about diagnosis and the way that was used as a tool of white supremacy and oppression. They were talking about colonization and the way that professionalism informs that. They were talking about institutions and how they uphold this in both very explicit and even implicit cultural ways. And so there was so much that we were having to process on a week-to-week basis just reading this book for ourselves that I was like, there is no way that in a week or two weeks or two months that a whole organization, a whole profession, a whole discipline has it together. Um, and I think the fact that we assume that like if we just have a couple of workshops on it, that we have one book club on it, or if we come, if you do this webinar that suddenly you're able to kind of dismiss and counter like 400 years and even beyond that of the impact of imperialism and colonization and anti-Blackness and xenophobia and like transphobia and homophobia and able like the fact that you think like in two months you're going to be able to like all right got it we deconstructed all that (laughs) we get it now let's change the world It, it feels almost laughable um especially as educators and as researchers and as as practitioners because we know as you know counselors it's we say like we have to have this deep immersion in a two to three year program just to understand 
basic foundation skills of 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 counseling. And so something as big as multiculturalism and social justice requires just that. It requires time. Um, Freire talks about consciousness, <laughs> requires reflecting and thinking and like unearthing things and sitting with the discomfort of it and then going right back into it and engaging in different action is this like cyclical iterative process that you have to do. And most folks who have been talking about critical pedagogy or praxis always talk about it being a long, exhaustive process. Um, and I think to your, you know, your original question, essentially the reason why it doesn't catch on is because we don't do the work. I think we want to like be right on the edge. We want to be like responsive. We, we want to make sure that we're not hurting people. And I think that's great. I think the fact that the counseling field is so, and counseling education too, is so keen on like, we want to make sure that we're not being left behind. We don't want to be the last person or the last discipline, like not getting it. I think sometimes we haphazardly jump into things without doing the work for ourselves. And I think um, it's great to want to be multiculturally, you know, responsive. Like we want to be social and justice-based discipline. I think the the problem therein goes is that sometimes we're just talking about it. We're like putting things in motion as far as like making these small steps. But when it comes to the processes and when it comes to the way that we kind of engage in our and, you know, think about like, you know, gatekeeping with journal articles and the type of grants that get awarded and the type of awards that we get about who's coming to conferences, how expensive conferences are. I was a doc student. And so I remember like being like, I am breaking bank because I'm being told that I have to go to this conference to network with people. So there's people who have power in these rooms that I don't have access to if I don't go, you know, if I, if I can't afford to get there. And so I think if we, if we think about some of the Practices and processes that the ways that we engage in counseling, counselor education, just beyond the classroom, because we can get into that as well. <laughs> just having to go into these programs and have there's not a lot of funding and support for it. What we'll find is that even our practice is not aligned um, <laughs> with this kind of justice-based, accessible, equity-based thing that we're saying that we support. And so I think the challenge is that while people are, for the most part, on board, not everyone, while most people are on board with wanting to see things change, especially for people who hold these multiple marginalized identities, the folks who are at the margins of the margins have been ready and have been doing their work already. And that finally, there's like this, this opportunity to kind of be heard and for change to happen. Um, I think the problem is that our practices don't follow it. And so it ends up being a trend. Um, or we'll start doing some things and we'll shift a little bit. But once that tide is over, we kind of revert back to what feels natural, which is very much a human experience. Um, but I also think we would have to almost reckon with um, not only our history as, counselor, as counselors in a counseling profession and the ways that we have contributed openly and actively to oppression and white supremacy and colonization and imperialism. Um, I think we will also have to kind of deal with the fact about how BIPOC and queer and trans and non-binary folks, people who have disabilities, like we would have to kind of like reckon with how we've been treating people in our own profession as well. Um, and so I think a lot of it is that we haven't really equipped ourselves with really understanding it. I feel like as somebody who's read about a lot, who's done a lot of work on it, um, both in my personal life, my professional life, and I'm still growing in the professional life part, I'm always learning something new. I'm always being challenged in some way. I'm always kind of having to sit with the emotions of like, wow, I 
while I care about trans and non-binary folks, I still find myself stepping in it all the time. You know, while I really care about making this an accessible program, there's ways in which I've been socialized to be told, like, you know, if you don't kind of have this standard that you shouldn't be in this program or that you might not be, have the potential to be able to kind of do the things you're supposed to do in this program, because this is what I'm, I've taught my competencies are supposed to be. Um, and so I think that's the reason. I think it's, you know, one, we struggle to walk the walk because we haven't given ourselves time. I think we're just being responsive versus like creating interventions and sustainable practices that can uphold the values that we say that we care about. Um, and I think it will require us to kind of like have a critical reintegration of our history that <laughs> I don't think, I think we talk about some of it. I mean, you've been in a clinical counseling class. Like you've been in a class where you talk about the history and the foundation. We talk about Frank Parson, the, you know, the father of guidance counseling. Um, but we don't talk about what was happening in the people, especially in clinical mental health counseling, that these were educators. These were like People who were in the communities were volunteers. These were community members who came together to support people who are having a tough time assimilating into life in a new country and assimilating to different cultures around them and different values and different experiences spiritually. You know, like people were trying to figure out who am I in this world? Who am I going to be now that I'm in this new place? Um, you know, I've just immigrated here. And so what is my identity going to be now? What do I like? They're, they're grappling with these existential questions and these people who are just around them in educational spaces and academic spaces, not the ivory tower, but just elementary schools and high school communities, community members who were just there to support them. I think when we think about that history, and I learned that very late in my like doctoral program, and I was like, oh, that makes sense why we care about advocacy. I will name that. I also did not know that until just now. So thank you for that. <laughs> I won't take credit. I learned it from my mentor. And I was like, oh, vocation. That's good. That makes, that makes sense. I thought vocation just meant y'all looking for jobs, but it was really like, how do I, how, how do I, you know, now change, transform my life now that I'm here? Um, and, and how then do I do that? And, and needing to, now that I'm teaching a foundational <laughs> counseling course, I'm like, oh, that makes more sense that like the people who were involved or people who cared about the well-being of people and then counseling was birthed out of that. Well, and I think it, it also just goes to show how entrenched this sort of blindness to privilege is within this field, that a field that originated on principles of multiculturalism did not have an ethical mandate toward multiculturalism until 1997. <laughs> So mm -hmm. what a long journey as you were, you're naming some of what I think are the really critical barriers to moving from this, we say the right words to we actually do the work and walk the walk. It's just how many layers this onion has. It sounds like that's a big piece of what's happening kind of at an institutional level in these counseling programs is that folks with a lot of privilege are low on endurance. Yeah. If we walk back to, you were naming some of the um, social pieces that resulted in a lot more of this anti-Black, anti-racism language being used kind of more in, in a more widespread way. Why are people or institutions or groups, why do they bother? You know, like why bother to institute the language? What do you think are some of those underlying motivators that get people started, but don't allow for folks to see it all the way through. Yeah, I think it's 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 two parts. I um, 
randomly in my master's program, I took a foundations of education class. And um, we had to watch this video about the birth of education in America. And I, I referenced this a lot. Um, and I found myself, I remember taking the class and I'm like, nobody's ever going to hear about anything I learned in this class. You know, we're reading Dewey and I'm just like, you know, this is not something we talk about in counseling at all. But I found myself always referencing it um, in counseling settings. And the one thing that the documentary talked about was that um, schools, specifically colleges, were um, created as institutions to essentially continue to kind of feed in social customs and values. It was building a society. And so, you know, there would be these little towns and colleges would accept one to two, you know, mostly boys um, who were, you know, education age to go to college. And the point was that you learn about society's customs, their traditions, their practices, and their values. And then you're supposed to go back to your town and institute those. So essentially you're maintaining social customs in Malou. That was the purpose of a college. That And, and I think while it's a very simplistic, there is a lot of other information too. Um, well, it's a very simplistic foundation. It makes so much sense to me every time institutions are like, you know, we're going to address this thing because we don't want to seem like we're not, um, because, you know, when you think about colleges, they're seen, um, and even now, given like what colleges are kind of like experiencing and some of the, a lot of the critique that institutions are coming down with even now, a lot of people see colleges, this, you know, this area and this time of life where you're able to kind of really sit, reflect, critique, um, because there's not, there's, there's a lot of spaces of freedom that happen in colleges. Um, Dr. Brittany Cooper came to um, NC State a while ago, and she talked about this in response to a student's question. And she's like, while colleges still, and colleges and universities still have um, a lot of work they need to do, there's still like vestibules of opportunities to like wonder, to like think, to encounter people that normally, you know, socially we probably would never encounter because people are coming from different places, different backgrounds. You're able to have access to the time to be able to kind of critique things that oftentimes we're unaware of. Um, and so it's seen as this almost ethereal place where like great minds kind of come and, and they talk and they, they, they create different worlds. And so you have that, this image, and then you have the foundation. And I think what happens is both of those are possible reasons why um, we'll go for something and we'll say all the right language, but then sometimes it it, it count it counters the purpose, um, and as and in some places the heart of what the purpose of college is supposed to be. I think the I think there are universities and colleges that really actually care about creating change and transformation. Um, but I think like most institutions in our country, there's always a lot of people who want good things to happen. There's people who want to transform and advocate for things to be better for everyone um, and be better for the people that are not even there um, or who are not considered, who are not allowed to be in those spaces. Um, but I think oftentimes the people who are in power are oftentimes having to negotiate between, do I do the right thing for a small amount of people or do I do the right thing for power? And oftentimes power wins because power gives us access to money. It allows for there to be the continuation of institutions and colleges. It allows for there to be different opportunities and access to technology, access to different disciplines, access to more money, more foundations. Like I think the, what the pandemic has taught me 
um, and that my partner has taught me because he's in student affairs, um, is just how much of a business institutions are. And I think when we think about institutions as a business, it impacts the lens for why we're going to say what we have to say in order to please the masses. Um, and also, there's somebody, there's other people that have power that are essentially kind of impacting what we're able to do. They impact who can work here, the impact who can come here, who can be supported here, what things are offered. And so when we think about it like that, it's like, oh, it makes sense. You're going to say whatever you have to say. It reminds me because, you know, we're ending off Pride Month and there's been this big conversation on social media. Um, and then also Juneteenth just happened, I think, last week. Um, time during the summertime is a little weird for me. But Juneteenth just happened. And, you know, there's for Pride and Juneteenth, there's this conversation around the commercialization of these very specific holidays or these specific events. Um, you know, Juneteenth is the second year celebrated. So there's been a lot of conversation within the black community, but society in general around, you know, there's Walmart selling watermelon flavored things. And it's like for some people, they're like, well, at least people are acknowledging Juneteenth. There's a sect of community members who are like, at least it's being acknowledged. These were talking about the history of the fact that, you know, people had to wait two and a half years to hear that they were free, specifically enslaved African-American people in Texas. Like <laughs> two and a half years, 30 months, um, essentially of having, you know, and, and you know, it's commercializing it through these different, you know, companies and these businesses. Does it cheapen the historical context of the fact that in the South, people were still engaging in enslavement or enslaving people knowing the information that they had? Um, and, you know, pride being a time of year during different times, because it happens multiple times, depending on where you are, it's supposed to be the time to be able to kind of celebrate a firm and empower um, and, and really, you know, um, go back to the history of people like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who like were champions for the rights and of pride and being able to celebrate the existence of so many different sexual and um, gender identities and experiences and, and, and like being able to kind of live in that. Um, but then, you know, you have a little flag at Target. Like, you know, so I think the if we think about institutions like a business, we're essentially commercializing multiculturalism, social justice anti-racism, you know, whatever the, like, whatever the trend is, oftentimes we're going to do it because I mean, that brings in dollars. Um, if we're, if we're going to get there, as far as business, it brings in money, it brings in better support for the institution. Institutions like to look transformative. They like to look that they're ahead of the game. Um, I've never been at an institution where they were like, you know, we're good. We don't need to innovate. <laughs> like, we're fine where we are. In fact, it's always the opposite. It's always like, you know, our mission and where do we want to be next year? We want to do better than the year before, better than the next semester. How do we go further, faster, quicker, better than everybody else? And so when you have that mentality, it makes sense that whatever is out there that's going to make you look better, make you look more critical, make you look more prestigious, because that's a value of institutions. Um, oftentimes, that's going to be the thing that we kind of hold on to. So I think that's the reason why we tackle it, but then we let it go because it's not truly a value of ours. And also we would have to compete with the outcome of that. There's consequences to wanting to change the status quo and to like change the way we do things at institutions. And I think oftentimes for the most part, if it doesn't impact people, they're willing to fight for it. But when it starts impacting you or your institution or the people who rely on your institution or people who fund your institution, um, and your reputation, 
that's when we be like, all right, you know what? Maybe we can do it for a week again to, you know, address the masses. <laughs> but maybe we don't we don't do the thing that could really change the way this institution looks. I mean, that is just so fascinating and I mean, painful uh, to think about yes. <laughs> this like yeah. juxtaposition of innovation with the literal purpose of higher education being to maintain the status quo. That is a dialectical dilemma for the ages. So, and I mean, maybe this is a little too cynical, but I'm even connecting with this notion of innovation and moving forward as really just another commodification that is coming from this global economy, this sense of competition with other, you know, countries. Um, So even that piece feels like it can be easily bought out. It, it, it's hard to not be cynical kind of given some of that information. Um, but I think what also keeps me hopeful because it might be like, well, then why would you want to be in academia and be within an institution that does such horrible things if, you know, you're aware of it? I think the the good part is that, you know, um, as a Black woman, growing up, the socialization around education can also be freedom. Um, it's a thing about bell hooks who... Um, has been a mentor and um, somebody that I've like looked to for guidance for so much. So much of her work has talked about the freedom that comes with education. And for um, multiple like marginalized communities, education and being able to have access to this information and what comes with uh, and the power and the privilege that comes with being edu- um, going through education um, is that you can make an impact on what education looks like. It's like a ripple in a pool. So I think about, you know, like, you, you know, you, you throw a pebble in and it has a little ripple, but it's still a ripple. It still impacts things on the way out. And then the more things you throw in it, the it, it changes essentially the way that the waves look. And so I do think in many ways that educational spaces also provide people opportunities to have access to different knowledge, to have access to different ideas. And that is innovation, you know, being able to kind of bring something that, you know, culturally is really important to me in a different type of knowledge, a type of value, a type of information that maybe is not taught in a textbook is so important for everybody there involved because when we're able to exchange that information, everybody benefits. And so I, you know, I don't want to leave on a, a cynical note, but I think the reason why, you know, the people who are, you know, on the ground who are who are doing this work and who have been doing this work both in institutional settings and even outside or in collaboration with institutional settings. Um, it's because they're all, they've always been doing the work. There's always been people who have been trying to challenge and change and transform the institution. Um, I think for the most part, those people do make the changes because we wouldn't have um, African-Americans on campus. We wouldn't have folks who are undocumented on campuses. We wouldn't have certain, we wouldn't have a lot of populations if we were just kind of focusing on keeping the status quo and white men being the only one who have the power to be educated. Um, you know, and so I do. I don't want to take away the activism that students and community members have done in educational spaces. I think the challenge is that oftentimes they have to work so hard by themselves in silos. Um, sometimes they get burned out, and they're like, well, "What is the? What is the? Like, I get something, but the the impact of like all the consequences of getting this one thing done, I think sometimes weighs really heavily, especially in counseling and counselor education, which is usually housed in an educational college, which Oftentimes, it's not the most funded. Oftentimes, when we think about like the, the building, always is the oldest. <laughs> like, 
Um, people don't people value educational institutions, but maybe not education. And so I do want to say, like, I don't want to leave out the fact that like a lot of liberation activism has happened um, in those institutions at the same time. But I do think oftentimes we hit a ceiling sometimes because once you kind of move up the ladder of power and being able to kind of promote change, there becomes a lot of more there becomes more obstacles of who you're fighting with and who you're versus who you're fighting for. I, I want to kind of zoom in on how all of these, you know, kind of higher level moving parts show up as actual barriers in counselor education programs. So if we translate this sort of values conflict, this, what you're naming, which is that it just takes so much effort from activists who are present in these spaces to make those ripples and make those changes. How does all of this end up translating into problematic colonized practices in a counselor education program? Mm. I think it's, I think it works the same in, in a different kind of way. I think what's significant, um, I, I think it's kind of sacred about counselor education um, is that most of us at some point in time were counselors. And so I think um, and I've realized this more this year with me getting um, kind of back into counseling um, is uh, counseling is a very humbling experience, um, both as a counselor and as a client. Um, I think what's humbling about it, um, I talk to my students about this all the time, is that you're able to kind of bear witness into the atrocities of human suffering um, and the the impact of systemic barriers and inequity. Um, and oftentimes they're like, well, how? And I'm like, give me an example. Give me a diagnosis. Give me an issue. And it's always connected to something really big. And I was like, the reason why, I was like, you know, we we work very personally and close with people. Um, but then, and and we're we're trying to, like, um, as a counselor educator, in addition to you having the skills, I'm also trying to train you to start thinking in a way that's a little critical. But it also challenges some of the beliefs and attitudes and values that you've been socialized into by your family, by your community, by our society. Um but I think there's a couple of things that happen in counselor education that I think may impact um, or, or challenge our ability to kind of really like stay, like hold on to some of these like concepts. Um, I think a lot of it is the revisionist history that we have. Um, you know, I took a history and counseling cast in my master's program. We never talked about um, um, the way that a, I think he was a psychiatrist. I forgot his name. It doesn't matter. He did horrible things. But he created a diagnosis um, around enslaved people running away um, that's punishable by death and torture. You know, and so when you start digging into the way that historically diagnosis, treatment planning, misdiagnosing, um, particularly young black boys with um, certain personality disorders and conduct disorders versus seeing that they were having challenges with other things, it's like... That seems so obvious. It's dreptomania. Sorry. <laughs> dreptomania, if you look it up, um, was an actual diagnosis. When we think about the way that diagnosis and the, the process by which folks who were trans had to kind of sit and convince a psychologist or a counselor that they were their identity based on if the counselor, the psychologist or the practitioner felt um, attracted physically to them or they felt like, oh, you could be the gender that you say you are, but you need to go through this whole entire process. And we have to kind of diagnose you as having dysphoria around your gender 
in order for you to get the support you need for you to get HRT, which is hormone replacement therapy, or for you to kind of get the, the things that you need with the put and add in. Like there's just all of these practices that counseling and psychology have both mandated and, and in some ways continue to mandate um, that is, is against the social justice <laughs> and multiculturalism part. Like you can't value that, but still engage in these practices. And so I think the the biggest challenge is that, you know, we're, um, most of us were taught in counselor education programs that essentially kind of imparted that, you know, this type of knowledge, this way of clinical skills and how we practice and how we approach people and their problems and their issues and their treatment and their diagnosis and their assessments and our instruments while they are normed on a very specific group, mostly white college men, um, specifically cis men, well, we know that we're not going to teach anything other than this way of thinking. While we know that these earlier theories didn't have everybody's best interest in mind, did not pay attention or consider people's diverse experiences, we're always going to start with psychodynamic theory or psychoanalytic theory. And we'll spend... 10 weeks on these traditional theories. And towards the end, we'll throw in feminism. We'll throw in postmodern approaches. We'll throw in narrative. Um, but that's, you know, one week before the final. And it's important that we talk about those foundational ones because we have to have a conversation about our history in order to talk about our future. But I think when we think about even the way that we construct the curriculum, the curriculum is still very much based on this one group type of knowledge, and which is which is a source of knowledge, but there's also so much other knowledge too. There's indigenous knowledge of healing. There's different ways that people like think about the brain and body connection and the soul connection and the healing connection that we don't talk about in counseling. And that even the textbooks will reference, but they don't really go into depth and detail. Those aren't the books that's supported by sometimes ACA. These are not the books where, you know, if you take the national certification exam, this information is going to be pulled from. I remember during my master's program, the the NCE's training book, I know they've changed the edition since then, um, but it, it had like this very racist like question around Black people. And I remember like, emailing the, uh, the the editor and I was like, yo, like, what is this? Like, it says something about, I, I can't even remember. It, it was something, if you Google it, it was a big issue because it came out on Twitter about how there was these kind of racist epithets and, and, and these kind of racist assumptions and stereotypes about Black people um, as well as um, Latinx people um, that were in the book and you had to answer it in the, in the responses also gave a lot of information about how the editors and how this profession felt about this, you know, group. And I, I think that's important. That's a published book that everybody uses to prepare for their certification exam. And that, you know, books have to kind of go through a couple hands and they're not, they're not always peer reviewed before to be sponsored and supported by a professional organization as the training mail for certification exam gives me some insight into how you really feel about this value of multiculturalism and social justice. This book did not come out in the 60s. <laughs> this book came out in the 2010s. <laughs> so that gives you a lot of information about kind of where we are. And so I think Counseling as a as a field, while it's a lot, it's a little younger than other disciplines, um, as far as like how it's been able to kind of develop. Um, while it has been innovative in some ways that some disciplines are still trying to be because they are a little bit younger, we're still kind of situated in the same type of history and the same type of value 
that other institutions are. You know, we're not, we were founded and essentially professionalized by a very specific group of people who had very specific ideas, thoughts, and assumptions, values, and beliefs. And so that is what gets permeated. That's what gets maintained. It's perpetuated all the time, you know? And so then as a counselor educator, I'm aware of this. And so, you know, I'm reading through books and I'm trying to find like, are they going to go a little bit deeper? And so what often happens is that I'm having to kind of supplement information in my classroom, um, which I don't mind having to do, but it would be easier if the, the standard was that we could write and, and train in a way that kind of embodies, like genuinely embodies these, these values as opposed to like the little small section of the book that says, also for multicultural consideration, you should think about people's different lived realities and identities. That tells me nothing. <laughs> so the problem is that for counselor educators, um, even people who really care and who, who are really trying to make change, um, while we have these competencies, they're not a cookbook. They're a guide. Like you should be competent to understand this information, but it's not a how-to guide. And so oftentimes people are having to rely on their own information, on their own knowledge, on other people's knowledge um, in order to do this thing. And that takes a lot of time. Um, when you're a tenure track, whether you're at a research one, research two, a teaching institution, um, like it takes a lot of time just to do your job. And there's so many politics that like take your energy and and, and your time and your, and your um, I would say heart out of like doing the genuine work that you're used to doing as a counselor, um, that having to go the extra mile to get this information, keep it current, bring it into the fold, and then depending on your identities, how it's going to be received by your class. Um, some people don't even see that you're a real counselor because they've never had, in my situation, a black counselor or a black professor before. And so I'm having to sometimes prove myself as a black educator. Um, it's it's the additional energy of having to get more information. And some people are like, I don't, one, I don't know where to get it. I wasn't taught. I've been able to succeed without having to do it. Why would I change? I have so many other things I could be doing that adding that is not really worth it. And also, I don't know how to. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Because when you think about some counselor educators, not everybody practices anymore. So a lot of the information that's being fed to you know emerging professionals is from somebody who's done counseling 20 years ago or people who haven't done counseling since their master's and doctorate program, which we know as like counselors who currently practice that looks very different. When you're currently practicing, you have different experiences. You're able to talk about the pitfalls, but also the the, the awards of what you're able to do. Um, so it's just very different. It's just very different. And so I think, um, to your point, the barrier for counselor education is that um, while we have these competencies, which is great because not everybody has those, it's, it's not a how-to, guys. So we're kind of left up to our own devices to kind of interpret it and figure out what's enough. Like, what can we actually do? You know, we have the kind of competing priorities of the of our um, classes. And so if I'm on a diagnosis course, and I know this is going to be on an NCE, or I'm in a career course, I'm teaching that, they're not going to be asking about, you know, utilizing this critical theory to kind of address what happens for the student. They're going to be talking, they're looking at something very specific and that's the theory. Can you apply it? Is it practical? Um, and so I think even the way we test and assess, that provides some insight into what we care about. 
Because what's assessed, what's tested, what we ask about, what we train about, provides all the information the students know. That whatever we're saying that this is going to be on the test, it's going to be on the NCE, it's going to be on the licensure exam, that's giving you some insight into what we value as a discipline. And until that changes, it's going to be uh, it's going to be like the individuals who are deciding to make the choices to add those things, which I think is great. And also, some people can do the bare minimum. Not everybody's created equal. <laughs> There's so much information. I do because I care about it. But I know like some people are like, I don't have time. I don't want to do it. I don't really care about it. Or it's just too much information to have to synthesize and then teach to somebody when I don't even know how to do it. And so I think that's the challenge too. But I think what's cool about counselor education is that we have amazing scholars that do this work already who like who are now publishing. And so now we have more access to like books and manuals and this is what it can look like. And this here is an example, like this is what a syllabus can look like when it includes those things. And so while it, it's hard to happen in counselor education, it's not impossible because we're doing it now. It's just taking a while to kind of catch on to this is like a norm versus something you have to go out and search for separately. So as you're naming that the, the multicultural competencies are not uh, an instruction guide, and how it, I, I hear you naming that there's this gap between what we're saying um, should be the outcome, which is inclusivity, acknowledgement, and integration of a lot of identities. Um, so there's this gap between that and what we're actually doing. What are the skills that counselors, or maybe even more specifically, counselor educators need to be able to? bridge that gap? I mean, you've named one thing that's helping your students think more critically about these initial counseling principles that are kind of just taken in a vacuum as if they weren't impacted at all by history. (laughs) Um, So like, what do we need to be doing? What skills do we need to bridge that gap? I think as a counselor educator, I think we should be taught how to teach, which sounds basic. I I know (laughs) that sounds basic. But also very legitimate. (laughs) Yeah, I think we should be taught how to teach multiculturalism in all the facets of our class. I think we should be taught how to talk about liberation psych and intersectionality in like critical indigenous studies. And like as a doctoral student in counselor education, in every class, it shouldn't be just a rehashing well in my master's program. In counselor education, I should be learning about how do I teach things that's in alignment with embodying the values of social justice and multiculturalism and the way that counselors will be able to utilize that in their practice to model to clients and their clinical populations, like how to embody this for themselves or, or how to collaborate with them for empowerment. Like you, I, I um, had the opportunity to go to this amazing session for ACA, two amazing Black counselor educated scholars, their brothers is Julius and I can't remember his other name. Oh, I feel so bad. Um, but they talked about like they did a Delphi study on counselor educators um, and their students and what like what experts and students were saying that they're needing. Um, and what they found was that there is this very much this iterative relationship that as counselor educators, we have to promoting, modeling and um, essentially grounding students with these values that then they they will then turn around and value within their clients and their clinical populations who will then take that further and put that into their community. I thought it was a beautiful metaphor for just how impactful counselor educators are. And so I think it starts from counselor educators. You have to 
like teach future council educators how to educate um, in a way that is critical. And that involves, you know, engaging it like yourself as a, you know, as a, as a professor, engaging in critical andragogy because you're training, we talk about pedagogy, but technically it's andragogy because these are adult people, adult students. And that's very different than educating children um, in some ways. But like, you know, essentially how I interact with my doctoral students as a counselor educator, how I decide to structure curricular opportunities for them to embody some of these values and to be conscious and aware and to practice and to acknowledge and to critique, that's going to inform how they then train future counselors. Um, and so I think the main thing, and again, it seems very basic, is that, you know, in teacher education, every class is teaching them how to teach something in a way that's aligned with whatever the value of teacher education is. I think counselor education should do the same. Um, I think as faculty who work with master's students, we have the opportunity to kind of go there and have open conversations about, you know, your book is telling you one thing and because it and it's coming from this perspective, which isn't a, which is a perspective, but here are some other perspectives I can add. And so that's going to require faculty to have to read more broadly, read more often, go to conferences outside of our discipline who are talking about this in a very dynamic way and then kind of bring it in, writing about it. Um, and not only in like these peer reviewed spaces, but also in other spaces too, like in conversation with other people and community members, being able to have there be more collaboration. And I know, that, I know there's a challenge with that because if you're tenure track, that doesn't count. <laughs> And so then we're having to fight against institutional like expectations in in like this whole like process that doesn't account for like we're we're trying to do like revolutionary work we're trying to do liberative work in our set in you know in our programs, um, but it's not support for that. And again, if it comes down to me getting what I need, which for you know is to eat, to like have employment, to be able to continue to have my job, versus doing things that might actually take that away. Most people will choose to, you know, look out for themselves. I think there's a, a, a new generation that's kind of unearthing that a little bit. But I do think for the most part, it's self-preservation, which is a natural instinct for people. But I think in addition to that self-preservation, there's community preservation. You want the people that you're essentially bringing up generationally to embody the things that maybe you didn't get. And so my, I, I do truly believe that people are already doing the work, but I think sometimes structurally, we're not supported to be doing all this extra work and going to all these extra conferences and having these people kind of come in and bring that information in. Um, and so I think as counselors who are in the field, um, supervision is a big point. Like while counselor educators provide some of the foundational entry level information to students, the once they graduate from our programs, we don't have much impact on them. <laughs> you know, like we don't have much ties to them. The people that they're working with are their peers. They're working with supervisors who have, who are like continuing and even deepening their knowledge and their socialization and professionalization and their development as counseling professionals. And so as a counselor um, who's working with people who are kind of, you know, coming in, um, being able to offer opportunities for that to be not only continued learning and engagement, but conversations, like how can we make the practice, how can we continue to be in conversation about making our practice more accessible? How do we start addressing some of the social justice barriers that happen in our community? Not all communities are the same. And so, you know, who is our community? <laughs> who are we in community with? Is there opportunity that we can kind of like 
Um, I was going to say cross-pollinate because I'm looking at my plants right now. But um, essentially how we connect with other different institutions um, and, and, you know, how do we connect with churches or spiritual places or mosques? You know, how do we connect with, you know, folks who are doing, um, you know, different types of work around helping and support? The communities are always the at the forefront of innovation. And I think we never give them credit for that. Um, and as opposed to like taking it over and utilizing it for a grant, like how about we like create, co-create sustainable practices to support our community members? Because that's going to be an exercise of the very things that we talk about in our program. And so we don't want the conversation to stop once you graduate. The hope is that even once you're around a community of counseling professionals, that they're still instilling that value. They're still embodying those things in different ways for you as a counselor, because that's going to impact the way you work with clients who maybe are having similar issues. So in thinking about this direction that includes community partnerships, that includes, um, you know, instructing people on how to be critical and maybe in a more, even more broadly embracing criticism as, as like a natural offshoot of learning, (laughs) as opposed to just regurgitation being the only (laughs) way to demonstrate learning. Um, I'm curious what it looks like to also help, um, and this may be a little too, a little coddling, a little too handholdy, but like for the folks who react to that, for the students who are uncomfortable challenging that status quo, who get activated in their own unnoticed, unowned privilege, or just the the discomfort of doing something that's different than what they thought the program was going to be like, for example, like what do we do to both help students process that piece while also supporting effectively the students who do get it, who are on board. You know, like, I think this is just the ongoing balance in a lot of multicultural settings is how do we not just, you know, coddle the folks who are new to the process and then end up leaving behind the folks who have experienced marginalization in various identities and so don't need to be instructed in marginalization. Like, how do we bridge that gap? <laughs> That's so frustrating. Um, and I, I, this is simple. If we can solve that, we can solve anything. I, I think the, I laughed because that was something that um, during my master's program really struggled with. I had a professor who, because there was, there was, there was a, a couple of people in our, in our cohort that just, oh, <laughs> just, you know, um, and there were some of us who were like, we're trying to push things forward. And I, and I remember having a conversation with one of my faculty members and I'm, I was asking her like why she allowed the student to kind of react this way. Like, you know, wh- like why would you allow this person to be not only disrespectful towards us and you, but also like they just are not getting in there saying things that are really like offensive and, and like it's not impacting their, you know, it's, it's, it started impacting their clinical practice. But like, you know, us seeing it happen and then there being us that felt like we had to kind of be held back because this person just wasn't able to have the conversation. Because every time it was always like a, it was always tension with it, Um, which for us, the people who want to know more, we end up not being able to kind of reach our full potential or being challenged because we had to like kind of keep scaling back for this, these few people. Um, And so that's the reason why I laughed. I was like, oh, because she told me that you just have to have grace and hope that y'all are able to move forward by yourself. And I was like, that's not helpful. (laughs) As a student, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, 
as a faculty hearing other faculty who kind of struggle with the same thing and have heard um, multiple people discuss this very concept, which is why I was like, if we can solve this, I think there could be lots of money <laughs> and lots of notoriety. If you go on a tour, like it can be a whole thing. Um, Oprah, here we come. We could do our own show. Like, you know, I think for me, as I've been kind of grappling with it, because I haven't really had it in my class yet. Um, I'm sure to come. Um, or if it did, I, it was very subtle. I think for me, what comes up just thinking about from a counselor perspective as well and, and thinking about, you know, again, like bell hooks and thinking about like teaching to transgress. Um, she talks about this. Um, and, you know, I think the most people are like, well, you pick one. You pick either you choose that it has to be this person with everyone or you choose to like ignore this person and be like, you know, you are where you are and we're just going to go for it here. Um, but I, I more align myself with um, being able to have kind of grace and compassion for what it must feel like to have the, your reality essentially broken, you know, to have the, the fabric of your, you know, your personal reality like shattered because um, mm-hmm. that's a very different experience than kind of growing up and being aware that because you look different, because you are different, because of how you identify and where you came from, how that like no, like growing up knowing that is its own kind of tra- trauma and hellish experience because you keep coming up against these invisible barriers. I can't talk today. Um that you can't you can't figure out why <laughs> like why why can't I do this thing why did this person treat me this way why is it okay that I can be victimized nobody cares because of my identities or that, I, or that somebody who looks like me who identifies as me can get murdered and it's not even covered on the news and they're misgendered and you left their dead name like you know like pe- like you it's, it's it's a different experience one is uh, uh, I I. <sighs> I'll do the oppression Olympics because I'm like, it's just different. It's just very different to have, you know, to grow up knowing that because of your identities that you're going to experience inequity and less power and going to be dis and at every stage you're going to be disempowered versus living your whole life. And that's not that you haven't experienced challenges, that you haven't experienced mistreatment, but that the fabric of your reality is broken because it's based on a lie. <laughs> it's based on something that overtly harms people in these sustainable ways across time and across places. Um, Those are two very different experiences. And oftentimes they're happening simultaneously. Most times it comes up in your multicultural class or a social justice class, if you have one. Um, And again, I don't think in counselor education, we're taught how to do that. We're taught how to teach content how to facilitate discussion, how to facilitate knowledge acquirement, how to help foster skills and cultivate community in a cohort. That's what usually your the baseline is supposed to be taught in a counselor education program. And that you usually learn along the way with teaching practice and stuff like that. But what we are taught is how do you like what do you do for the persons whose world is collapsing? And what do you do with the, you know, on the other hand, the student who's like, I've lived through this and now I'm having to educate you and then I have to coddle your experience where my experience has always been falling apart for however many decades I've been on this world and I see it all the time. I have to argue with you because you don't see it and you're trying to hold on to your reality and I'm trying to let you know what mine is and fight for a different one. We're not taught how to do that. 
Um, and so I don't know if it would be bridging a gap um, because I think like there's no bridge for it because somebody is going to be falling off. Mm. Mm-hmm. Somebody will have to sacrifice themselves in order for that bridge to be built. <laughs> um, and that sounds really dark, but I, I, I think because those are like world's differences, I think it's really hard to be able to kind of capture both. And so the thing I hold on to is um, grace. I've never, ex- I, I have never experienced that. I haven't, haven't, I haven't not ever experienced my world shattering apart. Um, Cause there are identities that I have privilege in that I'm always like, wow, like I didn't even realize that that's not something I had to ever think about. That's the privileges. You never have to think about it. You never have to consider it. You never have to worry about it or be concerned. You don't have to have the physiological reaction to it. I'm so glad you named the physiological piece. That feels like a way to maybe sort of embody both the grace that you're describing mm-hmm. and also maybe come at this world shattering sort of experience for folks with unacknowledged privilege as a trauma response, right? So like that is, I had one student um, in a former class that, I mean, he just had the thousand yard stare as we kept talking about how here are the counseling theories that are damaging to women. Here are the ones that are damaging to people of color and why and all that. Um, and you could, like he named that he was taking it all personally. I didn't want to say, well, you're going to need to get over it and let's move on. So rather, and I don't know if it worked or not, I was just said, well, where do you feel that in your body? Can you soothe that in yourself right now? Is that something that you can offer yourself some tenderness around without trying to figure it out. Yeah. You don't have to have it solved, but I don't think we're equipped to know how to answer. Like we don't know how to, because I mean, as counselor educators, some of us are still grappling with our own identities and grappling with our own reality shattering experiences at the same time. Um, and then we're having to teach it to other people and like having to be like, Oh no, I got it together. I got it. I can, I can do this. Um, but in that situation, it is a trauma response. And I think about like, what would I do? Cause I, I, I am a, trauma-informed counselor and because I work with folks who are survivors of interpersonal violence. And I think about, uh, and that and that grace is really not like a, oh, like permissiveness. It's not that. I'm holding you accountable because you're a counselor. And so while your personal experience is important for you to kind of grapple with, and I, and I do want to support you and be able to kind of understand your experience of what you're going through, because I can imagine, only imagine what that must feel like. Um, you're in a vocation where you're going to be dealing with people who are also having that same experience or people who are having the other experience of, you know, I know I feel marginalization. I feel that people are essentially, whether it be government, whether it be Congress, policies, like I feel the pressure of just because of like who I am essentially at the core, who I am is so viscerally hated that people will like to kill me, erase my experience, erase my history, eradicate my culture and my spirituality. I have to sit with that too. Like that is, that because I also want to support those students as well because they also have to have, they're also having a traumatic response with having to always be the person that's having to put out personal, visceral and vulnerable experiences to essentially prove to this other person that what I'm saying is real. So we're gaslighting one and we're ignoring the trauma of 
the the other. We're we're tra- traumatizing someone, that, and I and I experienced this in my master's program. And other and other people have talked about it, like because sometimes as instructors we were like, I don't know what to do, like I don't know what to say, um, because the book does not tell me how to deal with this. And also the books are from the perspective of a white person, because it's like, well, what do you do if you? And multiculturalism work with a black person or African-American or a Chinese American. And I'm just like, what if you're a person of color who's working with a white person? I, I don't have a, a good answer. I think it's it requires a different level of engagement, but also because my purpose is, you know, not only to support you as an individual, I'm also trying to help you develop as a counselor. Um, and at the end of the day, you, there are things you're going to have to kind of like do on your own. I think for me, it's like having to check in with that person and providing them resources. And so I had a professor who would do that for some students who kind of struggled with this. So she would give them books around like white fragility and she would have conversations with them. She would also do like these book clubs that were only for people who had the dominant or default identities as Sonia Renee Taylor talks about them. Like, you know, because I think there's something... Um, the same way that we have spaces as people of color, as po- folks who um, have multiple marginalized identities, we have to have those spaces where we can be safe, affirming and talking with one, one another and like growing in that way. So we don't have to explain things. There has to be space for those people as well. And so I think um, and, and it can't be in the classroom all the time. We have an hour and maybe 45 minutes or two hours and 45 minutes. Um, and you have to get through content because they have to know the information in order to serve clients. But I do think it is a responsibility for counselor educators and even counselors when you see it. Um, you're like, oh, something is happening with this person and they they need support. It's like, how do we kind of create opportunities to kind of foster that support? You know, because you do want to, you know, tap into that person. You do want to have grace for the experience, but also you want to, as a community member, want to kind of move them through that process. Speaking of care, last question. What words of wisdom would you offer yourself prior to starting your master's program? What support did you need then? Hmm. Let's see. I'm thinking about the, I don't know. Oh God, there's so many things. Wow. That's a good question. Huh. There's so I have a couple, two that come to mind. I think the first one is um, lean on community more. I think sim- similar to most undergraduate students, I was like, oh, um, like it's just about work and academia and being the best at it and and you know needed to like pass and stuff like that. Um, but I think what I I had like you know a couple great friends in my cohort who were amazing because we were all in the same thing together and all struggled the same thing together. Um, but also I felt like I, I would have really benefited from having like more connection with community outside of the institution. Um, I think that would have helped me felt more grounded and would have gave me an outlet that didn't feel like it had to be in class, that that would have really brought me back to myself um, in a way that I I didn't think I I found into my doctorate program. Um, I also think I was very outspoken as a student, if if you couldn't tell. (laughs) Um, I think maybe grace and compassion for myself, because I think in a lot of ways, because I wasn't getting what I needed from faculty as, as my professors, I did a lot of educating not only them, but my cohort uh, on different things. I put a lot of my personal stuff out there 
Um, and I felt so like, oh, I should have more. I should know more. Like I felt like held back because I was supporting so many people. I didn't get anything back. And so I think that's where the grace and compassion was. I, I wish I would have. Um, like, well, I'm happy I spoke out about different stuff because I think it did impact change. It impacted the way things were happening. Um, and even things that have happened today and that I've went back and I'm like, oh, this is what I was talking about, you know. Um, I think I wish I would have had more compassion for, like, this is a really hard experience. Um, and while you really want people to get it, I think it's okay if you just kind of work on getting it for yourself. Hmm. And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of students who have multiple or um, multiple marginalized statuses, that's often what they feel. Like, if I don't say something, then you're going to go out and harm somebody like that looks like me or have a very, ex- ex- you know, experience of me. And then it's going to be like, why didn't you do something? And so I think because of white supremacy and the way that we, the personal is political for people who are folks of color, for folks who have different identities and statuses, um, like you walk around knowing that you're a reflection of your community. And if you mess up in this space, that it means something for your community. And oftentimes it does, unfortunately. Um, and so that it, it, it creates the a minority stress. It creates an extra tension that takes you away from being present and being able to kind of receive the benefit of being in a program. I was utilizing my experience to kind of help educate people to understand, to to really see and understand my experience as a black person, a black woman, a queer black woman in this, you know, in this program, but also largely in this world. And so I wish I would have gave myself maybe not grace and compassion. I mean, that's part of it, but permission to not have to take on that load. Well, Dr. Parker, I am so grateful for your time today. And I mean, this just confirmed what I already thought, which is that I'm, I think you're just at the leading edge of where I hope this field is going. Um, so appreciate your efforts. Hope you are taking rest and finding balance in terms of how much you give and how much you get. And I'm just very thankful for your time today. Yes. Thank you so much for this. Um, like I said, I still have a lot to learn. So I'm, I'm you know, still growing and um, you know, evolving, but I appreciate the platform to be able to talk about something I really care about. All right, everyone, that is our show for the day. If you would like to keep this conversation going, then head on over to at Beyond Therapy Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. I would really love to hear from you all about your own experiences in your master's programs, your doctoral programs, How did you feel supported and how was support maybe lacking? Until then, this is Dr. Candace Creaseman-Mowry signing off. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening.